Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show with Brian and Andy. You're listening to The Big Balance, the podcast for anybody looking for clear, simple advice they can actually apply. Give us a little of your time each week, and we'll help you figure out work, life, and everything in between. That's right. Just Andy, no John today. It's going to be a very special one-on-one, heart-to-heart with Andy. Very special. I'm excited for it. Are you excited for it? I'm beyond excited. I'm over the moon. I'm jacked. I'm psyched. I'm ready to roll. Excellent. Well, today is, again, because we have Andy on, uh, an episode that is going to play to his forte, which is that of a recruiting guru. Can I call you a recruiting guru? You can call me whatever you want. Just don't call me late to uh, dinner. That was horrible. I'm editing that out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but what's going on Andy life's good got my COVID booster was like really fatigued and uh feel better now a little groggy but it definitely far and away outweighs the risks of actually catching this virus right I got I haven't gotten the booster yet I got floored Mm -hmm. by the uh the second shot oh yeah yeah for how long did it last it was about a day Honestly, it was, it was just, I felt like I was sick for a day. I mean, obviously better than the the worst case alternative. So what are you going to do? Yeah, for sure. You know, when I, <clears throat> cause when I got both of my shots, my wife and I went out to eat, I was starving and I consumed like a ton of food, but then I was able to sleep it off right away. Today I got it this morning and about two hours later, I started feeling like a little groggy, but I'm good to go now. A couple cups of coffee and it seems to have worn off. Did you just burp in the middle of that? Yeah, I had like a um, indigestion moment. Those are incredibly hard for me to edit because you were doing that like all of a couple episodes ago. You were doing that nonstop, and it's like going back and trying to get rid of all. <laughs> Was I really? I didn't realize that. Maybe I have a problem. There's a difference between you and John. See, I don't have to edit burping on John's side. What do you have to edit on John's side? Anything? John breathes like a fish gasping for breath. <laughs> Like, well, I like that topic, and I have some thoughts there. I think, <gasps> anyway, what I'm really thinking. Oh, that's awful. Maybe he needs. Yeah, it's it's a lot. Maybe he needs to be on oxygen. Maybe. Maybe he needs a COVID booster because he needs <laughs> yeah, some oxygen. He probably is immunocompromised. With that, let's get going into today's episode. And if you want to make fun of John's music being porn music, now's the time to do it. All right, cue the porn music. There we go. The employment landscape is going through an interesting time right now with what many are calling the great resignation. Some workers are feeling empowered, some employers are feeling nervous, and everybody's waiting to see what comes out of the wash from all of this. Employers are wondering if their current employees are going to jump ship, and if so, how are they going to find replacements? Employees are wondering, should they be the ones jumping, and what does it mean to seek employment in today's day and age? Back with us again today is Andy. Together, we're going to talk through job-seeking strategies from his recruiting point of view. So Andy, I can't imagine anybody listening hasn't heard of this great resignation, but just to cover bases, define for us what exactly is going on right now. So the great resignation, I think it's also been called the big quit. It's really the ongoing trend of employees voluntarily leaving their jobs and started back in the spring. I don't think it's going anywhere. It's picking up steam. So this is going to be the landscape for, I think, a decent amount of time. Do you think this is a long-term thing we're we're going through right now? It's not just a flash in the pan. I do think it's a long-term thing. 
I think it's um, a reflection of greater society in general, kind of rejecting power. Nothing's really safe from, um, I, don't, I don't think anything's really safe now from people. I don't want to say rejecting authority, but just trying to find an alternative. Does that make sense? It does, but here's, I guess not my issue, but what I'm wondering, and I'll preface by saying, I, I think this is a really interesting time in the job market. I'm excited about what's happening. Mm-hmm. I don't have any plans necessarily to to join the masses. I, I don't have a lot of the concerns that many have. I mean, you and me both were in, I'm going to call them pretty cushy white collar jobs. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? I think that's fair on the surface. Cushy from a sense that we're not in maybe a meatpacking plant and rubbing shoulders or working in an asbestos factory, but I don't necessarily think any job is cushy. We can do a a deep dive into this and I'm sure it'll probably, it could take a couple of hours, but I I think, you know, with the injection of private equity firms and hedge funds and investors and everything being IPO'd, shareholder price being of utmost importance. I mean, we know this, everybody's expendable. I don't think anybody is safe. So if I could crystallize your thoughts, you feel like we're in a time where it's more about profit motive than people. Correct. For every company. For every company. And I think employees are waking up and saying, well, if it's profit mode for the organization that I work for or whoever I will work for, it should be profit mode for myself. Well, here's my concern, though, which is uh, if I could boil it down to a question, how does it stay sustainable? Today, we have a lot of people who are rightfully upset with bad working conditions that they're in. They want better, but that could all change. And what I'm thinking, just to give an example, let's say you're one of the people who's making minimum wage and has no control over your work schedule. And those are two very big concerns people have, right? They, they don't know what hours they're going to get. They know it's not going to be many and they're not getting paid a lot of dollars per. Correct. If an employer comes back and says, you know, what? I'm going to triple your salary. I'm going to give you whatever working hours you need in advance. So, you know, a year, two years, three years down the road, I think a lot of what is getting people riled up could be solved. But then we're back to what we were years ago, and then those same employers could start chipping away at the gains that we made once everybody's back to work and there's there's not that collectivism that's really driving what I would say is the, the heart of the change. So do you feel like there's any kind of a longer term risk that we're going to cool down? We can project three, four, five years down the road, but we don't know unless we go off the launching pad. You know, and I also think some things too, and and everything's anecdotal and CNBC, they did this feature on a woman. She worked as a cook, you know, after the pandemic hit and she made it through relatively unscathed, she kind of had an epiphany and she wanted to go do something else. She went back to uh, code Academy. And she learned how to code. So now she's a software engineer. I think people realize throughout this, right, because we've had so much pain and suffering. And let's be honest, not to be morbid, a lot of death. And I think a lot of people have been faced with their own mortality as well. It's kind of like that song, Live Like You're Dying, Skydiving, you know, Rocky Mountain Climbing. I I think a lot of people are just saying like, hey, wow, um, life is short. It's precious. It's fragile. Why am I spending my time doing something I'm kind of lukewarm about? Why don't I just go try to find something I'd really like to do? The Code Academy thing is interesting. There was a, I don't know how big of a push it was, but there was definitely a push for people who worked in the coal industry to go back and become coders. And I think there was a a company's worth of coal miners who actually did just that and did pretty well at it. Mm -hmm. So it might be a good time to not just think about getting a better job, but also pivoting your skill set and pivoting what you actually do. A lot of people are doing that. 
my stepbrother is one of those too. He worked in the catering industry and they were shut down. So uh, he went back. It wasn't the Code Academy. I can't remember the name of the school, but it was IT based. And the service industry is talking about how they had lost workers. Well, from where I sit, if I was in an industry that was shut down for three months, four months, six months, whatever, I'd be pivoting and doing something else. So it's kind of hard to bring those people back. There's people out there and, and certain pundits that'll say, oh, it's lazy. Nobody wants to work for the service industry. Well, if you, you had a purge of workers because you shut down, they went and did something else. Or let's also be honest too. A lot of people got sick and some of them probably died. So that also affects numbers and it also affects the worker shortage and the supply chain shortage. Um, I, you know, I think I, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills because I feel I've, I've had that same thought where I know a lot of people who do succumb to COVID uh, fatally are older and maybe not in the workforce anyway. But there are a number of people of working age who have died of COVID. And I feel like I don't hear when we when we talk about this whole, oh, nobody wants to work or there's a labor shortage or this or that. I feel like nobody's really mentioning the fact that a subset of the working population as of 2019 flat out isn't here anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. And I feel like I'm crazy because I'm thinking that, but I don't hear anybody say it. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you at least talk about it. First responders in general, too. I mean, how many cops, firefighters, EMTs did you hear about succumbing to this? Nurses, doctors, people on the front lines. That have succumbed to this virus. So you can't convince me that just because a couple of people got $1,200 checks a few times in the past year, that they're okay sitting on the sidelines and not getting paid anymore, especially when emergency unemployment benefits have run up. So there, there's something more to the numbers than people just don't want to work. Uh, I don't believe that at all. I do accept this, some amount of scorn in the market as well. When we started this whole thing, a lot of people thought that the economy was not going to do great, yet Oh, a Kellogg's, I think, is the the example of the day. Kellogg's had really good profits over the span of this course, laid off people or people had to work a lot of hours. Uh, and, and for what, right? If they're considered expendable still and the company's willing to say, oh, bad market conditions, we have to lay off, but they did make good money. I can see being upset about that. Absolutely. We're seeing it with John Deere too. Perfect example. John Deere, great example. Perfect example. Companies in corporate America have basically set the stage and set the table for us to be a more transient workforce. And by transient, I mean, not just working from home or working, you know, if you're if you're based out of New Jersey, being able to pick up and move to Seattle, they've made it transient for people to work for different organizations. So again, it's really a table that they've set. What was that movie that uh, that came out semi-recently about the, the, the woman who did kind of travel around and she was an Amazon picker for a while? Oh, she was in the RV, right? Yeah, what was that? You know that we're talking about Nomadland. Nomadland. That's it. That's the one. Now that was a bit of a desperate situation too who, that she was in. But what was the situation? She, her husband had died, and I, I I don't know whether she lost her house or her her whole town. Actually, I think that's what it was. Her her town had been kind of like a company town, and the the mm-hmm. big business in the town closed down. Everybody lost their jobs, and she kind of went around. She was working in Amazon. Uh, warehouses and just doing odd job kind of things, traveling around. It's a good movie. What was the takeaway that you had from that? Or was there one? What stuck out to me really, and and this is the thing, I don't know how dramatized it was. I don't know how realistic it is, but you think about this company shutting down a town when it shut down. That's a grim view of the working environment. 
But the scenes that really came alive were when she was getting out on the road, learning the ropes about how to live that lifestyle, that nomad lifestyle, the people she met, the relationship she forged. So for me, the big takeaway, and, and whether or not this was really the point, I don't know, was it's about the relationships we have. Work comes and goes, and economic circumstances can always change, but the people you associate with outside of a nine-to-five job situation, that's that's what really matters. Right. And I also wanted to backtrack a little bit, too, on that labor shortage. I know for me as a recruiter, I would talk to people that said that they were retiring. So you have people retiring, people that have long-term effects of this virus that could be disabled, people that passed. I mean, those are three pretty big influences as far as this work shortage is concerned. I don't have what I would call an official count of who's on strike and when, but I did see some numbers just to kind of consolidate this. About 22,000 U.S. union members currently on strike, 10,000 at John Deere, 3,000 at Columbia U, 2K at Buffalo Mercy Hospital, 1.4 at Kellogg's, 1.1 at AL Minor. I mean, 22,000 at the same time in a number of healthcare and also production jobs. That's kind of have to take notice of that. Right. You know, it was funny when I was getting uh, my vaccine dose today and I was talking to the woman that jabbed me. She was telling me that a lot of Rite Aid workers in Texas just got up and quit because of the violence and things like that that have, that have happened at the Rite Aid, just because people wouldn't wear masks in the pharmacy area. Like, dealing with the public right now isn't something that I'd want to do. Now, hopefully that changes, but I think we have to put ourselves in those people's shoes as well. Well, not that I think. I know that we need to put ourselves in those people's shoes and have a little bit of empathy for what they deal with on a day-to-day basis. Because working with people in the public from being an airline steward or stewardess to being a farm, working in a pharmacy, to working in a grocery store. It's not that fun right now. And that's the interesting thing. So I went to New York the other week to visit some friends, and New York has a very hard mandate. Any restaurant we went to, anywhere we went, you had to show proof of vaccination to get in. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, you can say, yeah, it's a good thing that we're doing that if, if you want to control the spread of this virus. On the other hand, though, I, I do feel bad for the, the workers at these places. You know, I'm going to a restaurant. I'm not making I'm vaccinated. I'm wearing a mask. I don't fight against either of those things. So it's not a big deal for me to show a card. Right. But a lot of people do take offense to that. And I would hate to be the person working at a restaurant working for, again, not great wages, who has to somehow be the arbiter of health and enforcer of this code that they had no choice in. It's it's a weird position to put frontline workers in. Right. And I know that there were a bunch of airline cancellations last weekend. So you think about it, if you're a stewardess, right? And and these stewardess and, and these stewards are getting like punched in the face, possibly concussed. Altitude affects any kind of a brain injury like that. So they can't fly to their next flight. So that flight has to get canceled. I mean, you and I are in supply chain. We know how chains work. It just creates a ripple effect, you know? I'm going to take that nod regarding supply chain in our day jobs. I'm going to steer this back on topic because we're not a COVID podcast. We're a work-life balance podcast. And do you want to talk about the job market, state of the job market, how we're going to go about it? But before we do that, I do want to inject a little bit of my day job into this and talk about the concept of BATNA. And Andy, you've worked with me, even though you're in recruiting. Have you you heard that term around the office? 
No. BATNA is an acronym. It stands for the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. Generally speaking, what BATNA means is whatever your best options are, if whatever you're negotiating falls through and you need to walk away. Mm -hmm. And the implication is pretty simple. It's the person who can more easily afford to leave a negotiation table. It's the one who has more leverage in negotiating in the first place. Now, for years, employers had the better BATNA. If they had a job opening, they probably had you know a dozen more applicants to it. Well, businesses could afford to be picky then. They could find the best worker who would take the lowest price. And if that applicant walked away, hey, you got 20 more in the rafters. It's not a big deal. That candidate, though, they might not have the luxury of competing offers. And they have to take what's offered or hope they can find something else, especially if rent's coming due. But now the tables have turned, and this great resignation is seeing shops close down from lack of staff. And that shift puts leverage more in the side of the job seeker. Unemployment's below 5% right now. So people are working. That gives the employee more leverage. But if you, you, know, you go back to the mortgage crisis and the meltdown, the financial meltdown of 2008, it was much, much different. Usually companies seem to be slow to adapt to that. For whatever reason, I I have no idea why. So I think at this point, let's take a break. And when we come back, it's almost the new year. So let's talk about anybody whose New Year's resolution is to maybe enter this job market because things do look a little bit better. Maybe we are feeling optimistic that we can get a better job than we have right now. What does that person need to think about? What do they need to do to really move on that resolution? So first things first, I think it's fair to say that looking for a job, even in a competitive market, is still stressful, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's an uncertain time. And I can tell you as a recruiter over the past, what are we in now, 19 months? We've had ebbs and flows. If I was going to be uh, approached about changing a career, it wasn't that long ago that both of my kids were in the basement being taught from home. I mean, that's a major stressor. It's a, it's a big life-changing event to switch a job. So compounded with all the other uncertainty, I can definitely understand a potential applicants kind of pullback. So recognizing that looking for a new job is going to be a major stressor that people have. And if they still make the decision, hey, I still want to do this because I think it's the right move for me. What should they be doing considering all those potential complications to navigate a job search successfully? Well, first and foremost, you have your basics. Find out what it is that you want to do. What would make you happy? whether it's an industry, whether it's a job title. And if you have a passion, I, I would just say, go for it. I do see a lot of people complaining online when they're going and looking for jobs that what they see in a job wreck isn't always what they're actually told is the gig when they either get to that first interview or, God forbid, through the first five interviews. And a couple things that I've seen that are the biggest problem, they're looking for work from home because they like this work from home environment. And a job rec will say, this is a work from home gig permanently. But when they get in, they say, hey, this is only work from home for the next three to six months. And then we're fully expecting you in the office. 
that can be kind of a crushing blow if you're spending days or even weeks going through an interview process just to learn that at the end. So what can an applicant do to really protect themselves or get the the true detail of what a job is before they make that commitment? I would have an applicant ask for it in writing. I was told a long time ago when I first entered the corporate world by somebody who I considered a mentor that if it's not in writing, it's not so. And it can even be an email. Just shoot an email after the interview. Just want to make sure that this is truly work from home 100% of the time. And I'm not going to be asked to come back into an office and leave it at that. If no one's willing to respond to you, then that's a red flag to me. And uh, that's a deal breaker. Well, on that topic, what other red flags should people be asking about, right? Because there's, and we talked about this a few episodes before you got involved in the show about making sure you're not just showing that you're a good fit for the company, but making sure the company's a good fit for you. How do we really do that in this day and age? Right. So I'd want to know first and foremost how they have navigated the pandemic. And again, this isn't a pandemic show, but let's face it, this event has been an earth shaker for all of us. And hopefully it's the biggest earth shaker that we'll have to go through. So ask them how they've navigated the pandemic. Did you lose a lot of employees? Were there mass layoffs? I would also want to know how they've recovered from the pandemic. Have they embraced work from home? If that's something that's important to the applicant, do they have a hybrid model? If that's something that's important to the applicant. So these are all questions that whoever you're speaking with should have no problem being transparent with. Now, let me ask you a question about asking questions, because this is another thing I, I see a lot of people wondering about, and I'll go very quickly to pay. We know that we're if we're going to jump ship, more pay is a pretty good reason to do it. And a lot of people are wondering, should they be asking about pay early? When's the right time? And there are stories, I, I forget the company, but very recently, there's a whole Twitter storm about a company being asked, what's the salary range here early? And the hiring manager immediately nicks that candidate. No questions asked. So what's the, when do I ask about pay or anything else I'm interested in? What's the right time? Whenever you feel it's the right time. I always think it's important to get that out right away. As a recruiter, I'll always tell people, because the first phone screen is with me, I always tell people what the pay is. If I send out the job description, I usually put it at the bottom. And I, you know, for whatever reason, we've been told that's a no-no. I think that's a little bit, I think that's a little ridiculous. I mean, the bottom line is you want to hire people that are responsible. Responsible people have responsible lives. You know, individuals like you and I, we have a family to pay for. We have mortgage payments. People have rent payments, car payments, et cetera. And it's not like any of those companies that hold those loan notes are going to accept dirt in, in order for you to pay your bills. Right. So ask salary. I don't think there's a problem asking salary right away. And you know, it's funny. A lot of candidates are brainwashed not to ask that because I hear that all the time. So what does it pay? Or am I not allowed to ask that? It's It's kind of weird how... We've been conditioned that that's a dirty thing when the reality is it's not. Because that's one of the first questions I'm going to ask the hiring manager. So I think that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And side note there is when this isn't necessarily about hiring, but just working and, and salary in general, there's that same perceived faux pas about talking about your salary with your coworkers. Mm -hmm. And a lot of companies will say, hey, that's proprietary or private information and you're not allowed to talk about it. Just so everybody out there listening is fully aware, federal law states that employees cannot be prevented from talking about 
salary or pay. It is protected and we all should be talking about it because it's the only way to really know if you're getting paid your worth compared to anybody else in the org. Yeah, again, not about uh, hiring, but make sure you are breaking through that feeling of awkwardness, that feeling of faux pas when it comes to talking about salary because the best tool we all have to negotiate the best salary we can is to know that information. And again, going back to my day job, when it comes to negotiating with suppliers, look, every supplier in the market knows what their product costs versus everybody else's product. It's the people buying these products that don't really know. They're not experts the way those suppliers are, and why would they be? And that's why those suppliers can get really high prices. It's the same thing in the market. Your boss knows how much your entire team makes. Obviously, they hired them. If they're the only one who knows what the salary band is and what people are willing to accept, they have a lot of negotiation leverage and intel that employees don't have. So if you're going to go and look for a raise or a promotion, you should definitely be talking to your coworkers. What are you making? What did you make in this position? That's the best way to have that intel. So I'm going to show my age a little bit. I'm not as old as you, but I'm not a spring chicken either. And I'm a bit out of the loop when it comes to what it really even means to interview in this day and age. And what I mean by that is the last time I was out to market, I was going for face-to-face interviews in a traditional model. And even before the pandemic, I know that virtual interviews were getting huge. And now I, I feel like most are entirely virtual, right? So either Zoom or Skype or what have you. Actually, there's some, I, I know there are some pre-recorded video apps that an applicant has to basically read a question, respond, it records a video. It just seems very, very weird to me. But, I, I, can't stand, I can't stand this. Yeah, it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting and also somewhat terrifying concept to me. But for anybody who's in my boat, people who have never interviewed in this current environment, how should I be approaching this? Well, expected to take a little bit longer. There to be a couple of more steps. I mean, you know, a lot of positions, the final interview will be a panel. It was a panel interview where you'd go into the conference room. You'd have three or four people asking you questions. That's not the case anymore. You know, you have to check this person's calendar, that person's calendar, et cetera, et cetera. So um, definitely more steps. Now, I actually think that you can look at that as a good thing when it comes to being an employee, because then you have a chance to, to really dig. I, I think that that gives the candidate a, a lot more leverage, so to speak. The candidate can take their time, not feel rushed, not feel like they have to accept something right away. So I, I would definitely say more time. Now, as far as navigating other things uh, logistically, you know, some people might think it's a no-brainer, but it's not for others. If you're doing an interview with somebody via Zoom, via Teams, what have you, just treat it like a regular interview. Make sure you're dressed professionally. You know, I, I couldn't tell you that there have been a couple of times over this whole pandemic where people have told me candidates have said, yeah, I was wearing a sweatshirt. I see they did not get the offer. No, 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 no. And I've stressed like, hey, make sure you're dressed professionally. Even if the person on the other end is not, make sure you are. Can I admit something? Yeah. And I I feel bad because this was an interview I did for you, but I, uh, I think the last couple candidates that I interviewed that you found for us, I did totally interview in sweatpants and a hoodie and they were in full suit. And I've Felt bad about that. Right. So my candidates are prepared. Yes, they are. You do a good job, Andy. <laughs> Thank you so much. I need that. <laughs> I, I need that extra add a guy. Thank you. The last question I have, I see a lot more contract gigs than I feel like I used to. 
should I be sticking it out for full time? Is there something to contracting? Maybe I'm not fully thinking of and and is the ball in my court to really kind of pick and choose it depends on the uh on the industry that you're in from my standpoint a recruiter standpoint this is not a contract economy and it really hasn't been a contract economy for about four years you would be able to find something full-time also there's always that tagline well hey this could be a contract to hire position now if somebody says that and you're going on an interview Ask whoever you're interviewing with. Give me examples of people in your organization that started out as a contractor that are now full-time. There's no problem with asking that because anybody can say anything. And a lot of employees or contractor, contracted employees have been burned by that. Yeah, I, I got to wonder how often do companies, could, like you said, it's easy to say that, right? It's a, it's a free statement to make and you don't really have to necessarily pony up on it. How many contracts are cited as contract to hire versus how many actually turn into full-time hires? Very low percentage. I mean, I've converted a couple, but it's very rare. You know, I've been told that the contractor I've placed on site is doing great, et cetera, et cetera. We want to keep them around for the long haul. And then a week later, they're cut. That's the risk that you run with, with being a contractor. All right. Well, that's everything I got. And if anybody out there who's listening is thinking about taking the leap back into the job market as that New Year's resolution, and you have any questions, we have Andy as this resident expert on the recruiting process. So feel free to reach out. We can get those questions answered. Otherwise, Andy, anything you want to leave off on? We don't know how long this great resignation is going to last. None of us have a crystal ball. And we don't know how much longer employees are going to have leverage. So strike while the iron's hot, because now is a great time to um, start poking around for something that really suits your needs. If you don't ask, the answer's always no. Thanks for tuning in once again to The Big Balance. If anybody out there does have questions for Andy, feel free to reach out. Send us an email to bigbalancepodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter at The Big Balance, or send us a voice or text message to 484-273-0223. Message and data rates may apply. And as always, we'd appreciate leaving us a rating and comment wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time. Did you just burp in the middle of that?